Yeah? It seems a bit loud here. The monitors are a bit loud. Say to your neighbor, I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. You know, even if you're very unhappy about it, declare it by faith. <laughs> All right. It's a, it's a wonderful pleasure to be in the house of God again. And uh, if we can just quieten down, there's a lot of talking. I don't mind talking when I'm sitting there, but I don't like it when people are talking when I'm talking. <laughs> it's great to see my mom at the back there. Mom, could you stand? Let's welcome her. She came back from Ghana yesterday. I was really surprised. Wow. Okay, thanks, mom. It's a moment of stardom. God bless you. <laughs> All right, I'm going to talk about um, the gospel. The title of my message is Understanding the Gospel. This month we're focusing on evangelism, specifically sharing your faith and uh, different aspects concerning sharing your faith. That's what evangelism is. And I'm really just going to share some stuff about what the gospel is all about. If you can reduce the treble a little bit, it would help. It's a bit... Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. So, the title of this teaching is Understanding the Gospel. And our Lord Jesus is speaking and he, said, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So what is evangelism? Really, it is the propagation of the gospel. And uh, here in this verse, we see that every child of God, anybody who is a serious follower of Jesus Christ, has this mandate on their life. That is... To share the gospel. Jesus says to believers that we are to go into all the world and proclaim or declare the gospel. The one that believes and is baptized according to Jesus will be saved. The one that does not believe will be condemned. It's a very serious verse of scripture. The first time I saw this, I was shocked that it was in the Bible. It really surprised me. And that was what motivated me after giving my life to Jesus to get baptized. Now, this mandate here is not just for some special people. It's for anybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ, who calls himself a Christian in the true sense. If you are serious about your faith, if you are serious about following Christ, then this expectation is also upon your life. Now, the challenge that many of us have, and certainly throughout the church age that we've had, is what kind of gospel are we supposed to preach? What is it that Jesus is asking us to let people know so that they get saved by? And what really are they being saved by? from. Now, before we go into it any further, I want to read another verse, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Now, Paul the Apostle is speaking to this church, and he is really not happy about certain things that had come into the church. Uh, they had become quite legalistic in the sense that 
they were now measuring their right standing with God by what they did of themselves. And so Paul, in writing to them, was correcting some errors that had crept into the church. And he says in verse 8, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what, you, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, this is a very, very serious statement. Paul is talking to people that he won to Christ. And he says to them, listen, even if we came back to you and began to tell you something different than what you first heard, then a curse should come upon us. And then he says, even if an angel from heaven was to come to you and to share with you something different than what you have heard, then let that angel be under a curse. So if it's like that, then it's very important for us to know what this gospel is. And by the way, the word gospel literally means good news. It's an old English word that means good news. So what is the good news that we are supposed to tell people that do not know Jesus? No doubt in this room, all of us or almost all of us will see ourselves as Christians. By the way, it is really good to see our former members, Ola and Tanwa. Wave, wave, wave over there. You think you're going to get away with it? Eh? It's good to see them. Wonderful. So what is this good news? What is this good news that we are supposed to tell people? And why is it good news? Uh, so before we go into that, let's talk about what the gospel or the good news is not. So there are two things, basically. The good news, first of all, the gospel is not what I call easy believism. And secondly, the gospel is not uh, legalism. So let's talk about what easy believism is. It's very popular today. So this is a distortion about the message of Jesus, which introduces our Lord as like our best friend, our provider, the one who guides us, the one who helps us. Jesus comes into our life, and once we believe in him, he's going to sort our lives out, and our lives are going to get much better. Sounds familiar, yeah? Now, it's a distortion of the message of the kingdom of God because it does not address the need that people have for their sins to be forgiven. And their need to repent towards God. In other words, to change their attitude and the direction of their lives towards pleasing God. Easy believism doesn't touch on that. It's like a sales pitch that allows, it gives you a picture about God, about Jesus, about the kingdom of God. That makes, it, makes you feel like, oh wow, if I receive Jesus, then everything is going to be alright in my life. My life is going to be really great. I'm going to be really doing well with my life because now I've received Jesus. I'm going to get a lot of money coming into my account once I believe in God. How many of you found that to be true? Uh, it's not true. It's not true. Once I believe in Jesus, things are just going to get better. Life is going to improve. And sadly, 
when people believe that and they give their life to Christ, so to speak, under that banner, they get a big shock after they give their life to Christ because it is quite a different picture if you want to follow Jesus properly. So this kind of gospel presents Jesus as the one who is willing to give you love, give you joy, give you peace, and fulfill every promise that he has for you and that everything will be great without really you having to do much about holy living, personal purity, sacrifice, loving people unconditionally, allowing people to take advantage of you because you are following Jesus now. Nothing like that. You went quiet there. It fails to mention certain crucial things. One, easy believism fails to mention the penalty of rejecting Christ. Our Lord Jesus said this in John chapter 3 verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why? Because the world is already condemned. So he said the world is already condemned. Later on, he says that. So Jesus came to take the world out of condemnation, and we'll touch on what that means later on. Secondly, easy believism fails to challenge individuals to a change of lifestyle that comes after they receive Christ. And this, this includes things like the need for fellowship, the need for discipleship, and the need for you to grow spiritually after you give your life to Christ. It's like a person, a child that is born. When a child is born, that child needs to be taken care of. That child needs to be fed. That child needs to be looked after, needs to be cleaned, needs to be um, protected. And that's what it's like for anybody that gets born again into the kingdom of God. They need the fellowship of the church. They need to be taught what it means to be a Christian. They need to learn. Some people say this, I don't need any man to tell me anything about the Bible. I, I, I let God tell me myself. My friend, that's just kind of stupid. It's like a child saying, I don't need no parent to look after me. I don't need no parent to, to cook for me. I'm going to cook for myself. Yeah, it's true. It's, 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 it's silly. Third point about easy believism is this. It does not warn people about the difficulties that comes after they become a Christian. After you become a child of God, you will face challenges. My first two years after following Jesus were one of the most horrible years of my life. Side of my childhood were horrible. I hated being a Christian. I didn't like it at all. I thought it was the worst decision I could have made with my life. Hallelujah. You don't hear that often. You know, me and my, one of my best friends, we both gave our life to the Lord at the same time, and he was telling me about how, well, everything is different. He said, Joe, have you noticed the, the trees are different? The colors of the trees are greener, and the, the sky is bluer, and, you know, everything is really nice. And I said, no. I said, everything's horrible. I said to him, this is horrible. It's really horrible. I didn't like it at all. So everybody has a different experience. Mine was horrible. My first two years following Christ was not nice. And now Lord says it like this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. He said, Then he, Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Verse 25, but for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. So our Lord is basically saying, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to be prepared to go through some tough times. And by the way, if when you're following me and you get embarrassed and you're kind of ashamed by identifying with me, you get ashamed and embarrassed, he says, I'm also going to be ashamed of you in front of my father and the holy angels. Again, when I read this thing, I went, oops, because I'll be honest with you, after I gave my life to Christ, I didn't like people seeing me with a Bible. I used to hide. These days, you get away with holding this, you know. You can just hold it so people think you're just playing a game, but you're reading the Bible. But in my days... In the 80s, and the, in the 80s, I got saved in the 80s, when some of you were not even conceived in your mother's womb, in your mother's mind. Um, I got born again, um, and um, I would have my Bible, and I'd go on the bus, and I would read my Bible like this. Because I didn't want people to feel like I was some kind of weirdo, religious nut. Of course, I was a weirdo and a religious nut, but I didn't want people to know that. So I would read it, and I'd be like that. And I'd hide my Bible. How many of you remember the hiding Bible days? Look at these, the rest of these people. I won't call them liars. Look at the rest. How many of you? How many of you remember that? Ah! Be embarrassed. And even, even uh, at work, you, don't, you know, if you're praying, you pray very stylish. <laughs> Meanwhile, our friends who are Muslims, they don't mind. They don't mind just wherever, in the plane, just, you know, just, where's Mecca? And just... Boom, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Christians. So sometimes when I'm walking the park and I'm praying, I'll be going, and somebody woke up as they pass me. You're right, mate. I say, yeah, I'm praying. Oh, okay. Yeah, why not? I mean, but sometimes I, I like to go, but if I see people coming down, of course I'll go. But on a serious note, when you're following Jesus, it's going to mean you're going to lose some stuff. You're going to be embarrassed because of him. You're going to have to allow your reputation to be misunderstood or misrepresented because of him. Also, in the Acts of the Apostles 4, 14, 21, and 22, this is what um, it says. It says this, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, look, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. In other words, if you really want God's will, you're going to have to be prepared to go through some tough times. Now, this is what is involved in the gospel, but easy believism doesn't like to mention that because it's not very attractive. In fact, in some churches, you're not even allowed to talk about hell. Hell is a negative word. It's negative to say hell. Hell. If you say hell, it's like, whoa, that's a bit too much. You know, you're going a bit too negative. You're supposed to talk about things that will make people feel good. 
But beloved, if you want to follow Christ, you're not always going to feel good. And then the gospel is not legalism. What is this? A legalistic approach to the gospel is really where people have man-made rules and regulations that they say you have to follow before you can be saved. So legalism refuses to rely on faith in Jesus and what he has done alone for us to be saved. But in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, the scripture says here that the Philippian jailer, when he had brought Paul and Silas out, asked them the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, put your complete confidence and trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if your family does it, they also will be saved. Also in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, the scripture says, from verse 8, it says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Nine, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So those with a legalistic approach emphasize a truth out of its context towards salvation. So they'll say things that you have to do in order to be saved rather than recognizing that it is only our faith in Jesus Christ alone that really saves us with all its implications. So in some contexts, some may say, unless somebody is baptized, they cannot be saved. Or unless they speak in other tongues, they cannot be saved. Or unless they join our church, they definitely cannot be saved. It's all a nonsense, by the way. None of that is true. Now, whilst all the things I've mentioned are desirable, they are not a prerequisite to salvation. Salvation is a free gift that God gives to us when we put our confidence in Jesus Christ. These other things are privileges that we can experience in God's kingdom after we get born again. So easy believism attempts to take away from the gospel message whilst legalism seeks to add to the gospel message. All right, so what is the gospel then? What is, what is, what is this thing, good news? Why is it good news? What is, it, what is good news about receiving Jesus Christ? Because honestly, for some people, it's irrelevant news. You know, my life is all right. You know, well, I'm not a bad person. You know, I, I, I live a good life. You know, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't lie. I, well, that's a lie. Maybe I haven't lied today, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't steal from people. That's kind of a bit of a lie as well. I'm sure you've stolen a bit of time from your workplace. I'm sure you've stolen something before. Uh, okay, let me, let, me, let me backtrack. I haven't killed anyone. That's not a lie. Mm, I'm not sure. If you've got hatred in your heart for someone, according to the Bible, if you hate people, you're a murderer. Ooh, this guy's horrible. This preacher, I don't like him. I don't like him at all. Okay, no, you know what? I, 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 I'm not a violent person. Mm, uh, but you, you like swearing, don't you? Oh, what's, what's your problem? 
preacher, what's your problem? Okay, I'm not a bad person. In my mind, I'm not a bad person. I don't steal from people anymore. I don't cheat with people anymore. I won't do bad things to people anymore. I'm not a bad person. How many of you used to believe you were not a bad person? How many of you still believe you're not a bad person? Listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Me, I know I'm a bad person outside of the grace of God. Hallelujah. All you good people, praise God for your life. But anyway, what makes the message about putting your faith in Jesus, what makes it good news? Why is it good news? Well, I've kind of already said to you, it's not about life improvement in, in the sense of you're going to get more money or your, your marriage is going to get better. Because sometimes after you follow Christ and you go and say, honey, I've just given my life to Jesus. You say, what? You're religious? Now I'm out of here. That's the end of your marriage. That happens. Or you go home and say, mom and dad, I've just, I've just given my life to Christ. I went to some church, some black fat guy was talking, and uh, it was a real amazing message, and I'm inspired. My life is changed. I've given my life to Christ. And they're like, listen, you ain't going back to that freak show. How many of you experienced some tension after you gave your life to Christ? Have you even given your life to Christ? Some of you, the way you... The way you're looking at me. So what makes it good news? So it's good news because of the following. It's good news because human beings, without them realizing it, every human being is already condemned to an eternity without God because they have been infected with a condition called sin. And that condition of sin makes it impossible for them to be able to come before God. And when they, come, when they die and they stand before God's judgment seat, God has to condemn them as guilty because they are infected with a condition called sin. Now, that's not what God wants for them. But unfortunately for humanity, our first parents did something and from what they did, it infected all of us. Now, somebody will say, why didn't God stop it? It's a very good question. I want to give you an answer. I don't know. I have asked that question myself. I mean, I trust God because I think God is smarter than and I and all of that. And I think God's wisdom demanded that they had to um, make a choice. But I'll be honest with you, I don't get it. I don't get a lot of things in the Bible, I'll be honest. And I've walked with Jesus for 36 years. And there's a lot of things I don't get. There's a little bit that I get, but there's a lot I don't get. But I know one thing about God. He is a loving God. He is a kind God. He is a gracious God. He is a merciful Father. And in, in his wisdom, if he thought that it had to happen, then it had to happen. So, because human beings have this infection of sin, it means that all of us are doomed. We may not realize it, but we're doomed. So there's the plight of the human race. So this plight of the human race means that everybody has a need of salvation. And then the gospel is that God has provided salvation. In other words, God has made a way out so that none of us have to face an eternity without hope. And then God shows us how we receive salvation and then we can then begin to see the results of this salvation. Salvation basically means wholeness. When you've been restored back to what God originally intended. So let's talk briefly more about the plight of the human race. 
John chapter 3, verse 16, a very common verse of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When God created humanity, he created humanity out of his love. From, out of love. It was out of his love nature that he created humanity. And then he placed us in a perfect environment called Eden or paradise. And then he gave us the boundaries of living in that environment. And then he gave a commandment. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, it was not an apple. It wasn't an apple. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, the day you eat it, you're going to die. Unfortunately, we ate it. Now, somebody said, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have ate it. Uh, Let me say this. Adam was the best of us. So, if you were in the garden, you'd have ate it a lot earlier than Adam did. You would have. He was the best of us. So when he ate it, it meant you would have ate it. I would have ate it. Say to your neighbor, you would have ate it. You might be still eating it now. <clears throat> so anyway, now what death, so when they ate it, it meant death. But now death doesn't mean that you're dead like that, like there's no more life. Death really means this, that now God can no longer influence and also there there will be a process of decay degradation and and with all of that comes misery sorrow sickness and so forth so whenever god is in something then he brings life but whenever god pulls out of something then there is an automatic process of death that takes place so death is not just your absence of life it means, it's, it's not just that you, you cease to exist. It means that God's influence is no longer there. And what that meant was this. They died spiritually, which meant they could no longer commune with God. They died in their soul, which meant that they could no longer reflect the person, their true personality and identity as um, representatives of God. And they eventually died physically. But also, it meant that now their body became subject to diseases, to sicknesses, to problems and dysfunction because it could no longer function properly. And actually, what happened then, the body began to dominate the spirit and the soul rather than the spirit dominating the soul and the body. And that's what the death meant. And we became all kinds of miseries. So that is the plight we find we found ourselves in. And apart from all of that, we found that broken relationships began to take place. It took place with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and then it continues. So humans turn on humans on all kinds of things when we were supposed to actually be a blessing and build up each other. So that's our plight. So when God saw this, he realized, oh, well, he knew all of this in advance, by the way. So our plight means we need salvation. That word salvation is we need to be restored to wholeness. And I say this to you, and even many Christians sometimes don't even know what I'm saying. Unknown to most people, because they've inherited this condition, they are doomed. Now, I remember as a child growing up, I had this sense. There were two things I had a sense of. I had a foreboding sense of fear growing up as a child. Nobody told me this, that there was something bad that was going to happen one day. 
And the second thing I had was I had a, 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 a sense of something was missing. As I grew older, this sense of something was missing became more and more distinct. So in my teen years, I was very aware that something was missing. Now, I'll be honest with you, I thought that something was missing was I'm probably from another planet. I'm just being honest. In fact, one of my friends said, Joe, you, you look like an alien. They, they said it. They're in this church. They told me, I look like an alien. Do I look like an alien to you? They told me that. Can you imagine? I, who said yes? Um, so I had this, I, honestly, because I used to be in a lot of sci-fi and stuff, so I had this thing that maybe I, I am, I'm from somewhere else. Now, I was from a place called Chibi and, uh, in Ghana, and uh, my parents come from Earth. Um, they're very Ghanaian. <clears throat> but I had, something was missing. And you're probably here, and in you, that something is missing is there. Now, many people try and fill that something with all kinds of things with alcohol, with sex, with drugs, with the pursuit of fame, whatever it is. Even some people who are following Christ or think they're following Christ still have a sense of something was missing. When I gave my life to Christ, this is even before I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I one day realized that thing is gone. I was shocked. I looked for it and it wasn't there. How it manifested in me was a deep hunger for knowledge when it came to astronomy and astrology and the occult. That's how that thing expressed itself in me, that something was missing. And I was so fascinated by these themes, but after I gave my life to Christ, it just disappeared. It disappeared and I was so stunned that something was missing, was no longer missing because God had come to live inside of me and he had filled it. In Romans chapter 3 verse 23, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, every one of us need salvation. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Bible says, For the wages or the payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, every one of us is in need of salvation. So what did God do? He provided a way out. Now, God, knowing our hopeless situation, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to die on a cross in our place. So the question is, but why does he have to die? I mean, what's that all about? It's a bit gruesome. Again, this is one of those things that I don't really understand, but I'll, I'll tell you it like this. When sin comes in the scene, and we commit sin, the dysfunction caused by our sin can only be replaced by God's life. That is it. But for God's life to be able to replace that sin, it has to be appropriately applied. And it has to be a life that is on the same level. So you find in Leviticus 17 verse 11, this is not in your notes, but this is worth having, it says this, for the life of the body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. So the way God realized, well, the way it is, not even the way God realized, the way it is is that where there is sin, it has to be replaced by the life of God. And the way the life of God is applied is through blood. Now, I don't get the whole thing, but that's the mechanics of it. 
I don't even like the whole thing, but that's the mechanics of it. However, in the Old Testament, they couldn't use any human blood for that because every human blood was polluted with sin. And anyway, I'm not sure I would be prepared to die for any of you. No offense. And the second thing was, is that what was provided was animals. And the animal blood could not take away the sin because we are superior to animals. So everybody, even the righteous people who died, when they died, they couldn't go and be with God because they were still polluted with sin. They'll go to a place in Hades called paradise where they would wait because they were still polluted with sin. So God had to make a way whereby a, a human being could come who would have no sin, no pollution of sin, and who would be prepared to offer their life to address the sin issue that every human being has. And that's why Jesus came. So you find in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 verse 4, it says this, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So animals couldn't do it. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, these are not in your notes. It says this. I'm reading in the New Living Translation. It says this. So Christ has now become the high priest over all, over all the good things that have come. He has, entered, he has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place, once for all time, and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a hive or a cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think, he says, how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for sins. Wow. It's amazing. And then Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says this. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So basically what he's saying is this. The reason why Jesus had to come was because your sin nature cannot be dealt with, first of all, by your own good works, because it's already polluted, and secondly, through the blood of animals. So Jesus had to come as a human being, perfect, sinless, whose pure blood could then deal with the sin issue. And this is why, by the way, he had to be born of a virgin, because the seed um, is in the man. And Adam, when he sinned, it's through Adam that all of us are inherited sin. It's not through the woman, it's through Adam. So the seed that was put in the woman was the eternal son of God. He was the one that was put in the woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when he became a human being, it was like he was the God-man. And that's why Jesus is unique in the sense that he's the only God-man. He's the only one who's completely God and completely human. And it was his blood that was able to deal with our sin issue. Amen. So how does it work for us today? So now when we put our faith in Jesus, what we're saying to God is we identify with the sacrifice that Jesus made 
and we, we claim it on our behalf. We accept what he's done on our behalf. It's like this. You committed a crime. You go to court. They, the judge passes a sentence and says you owe 10,000 pounds. No, these days that's nothing. You owe, well, I mean, it's something. I'll take it if you're giving it to me. You, you, you owe 10 million pounds. That's something. You owe 10 million pounds, and you can't afford it. And then some guy comes along, let's say Richard Branson comes along, and says, uh, I'll pay it. Well, how many of you was, and, and he says, I'll pay it, and then you're free. You don't owe me anything. Or I'll pay it, and I'll also put another 10,000 in your account, um, 10 million in your account. How many of you say, get lost, you idiot? I don't like your beard. Get lost. How many of you will say that? How many of you will accept it? Of course, if, you, if you're right in your mind, you'll accept it because, one, the guy's paid for your, your debt and then they've put 10 million in the account on top of it. Well, Jesus has done far more than that. Not only has he paid for your sins, he has credited you with what the Bible calls the righteousness of God. So now when God looks at you, he doesn't see Jack Osborne, he doesn't see Steve Grant, he sees the righteousness that is in his son, Jesus Christ. So not only were your sins removed, but you were given a new nature, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why when you come before God by faith, God looks at you through the lens of Jesus. That's why we're accepted by, 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 by God, because of what Jesus has done. And so we receive salvation simply by faith. I read the scripture to you earlier on, Romans 10, verses 8 to 13. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. In other words, you confess. You say, you know what? I believe Jesus is alive and he is my Lord. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. In other words, you've put your confidence in what Jesus has done. He says you'll be saved. So, so that is it. That's, that's what God has done. So what does that mean? It means that what you have to do is you have to be prepared to receive Jesus, and you do that by, first of all, uh, recognizing your need to be forgiven. Recognizing your need to be forgiven. Recognizing the fact that you are a sinner, that you've gone your own way, that you need God in your life. And this is why it is important to call something that God calls sin, sin. Sin simply is where you've missed the mark. Now, society's definition of sin changes. In the days of old, if you, if you married somebody from another race, it could be classed as sin. And then it changed. Then the laws kept changing. So society changes. I'm not even going to go there. Society changes its laws about sin all the time. But God's word doesn't change. So, if you want God to forgive you for something, you first have to agree with him that this thing is wrong. And as I bring this to a conclusion, there's a scripture, it says, it's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess your sins means to say the same thing as God to say the same thing as somebody. So when we confess our sins, it's not that you're saying, confession of sin is not saying, I, I, I stole money, I, I did the wrong thing, I, I ate your food that I shouldn't have eaten. It's, that's not what confession of sins is, like you go to a confessional booth in some of the churches. It's, that's not what confession of sins means. Confession of sins means 
you agree with God that the thing he says is wrong is wrong. That's what it means. Now, some things that God says is sin, you would actually not see it as a sin. There are many things that I didn't realize were a sin for me that um, after I got born again, I, I really realized it was a sin and I was really upset. So, for instance, before I got saved, okay, after I got saved, I realized that it was a sin to have sex outside of marriage. I was really upset. I was only 16. So, of course, I'll be upset. You've gone quiet again. Are you still here? Yes, We're nearly done. Another thing I realized was a sin. This one, nobody even told me. Before I got, gave my life to Christ, I liked swearing. I used to even invent swear words. How many of you done that before? So I used to like swear. Hey, this, this, today, you're really holy looking. You, you, don't, you don't lie. You don't, you don't like swearing. How many of you liked swearing before? Nobody in this church liked swearing before. Well, I did. I really liked swearing. And then after I gave my life to Christ, nobody told me about swearing. One day, I was just talking. I said, F the half. And I went, Because the way you're looking at me. You don't even know what F the F means. But what the... What happened? My nature had changed. You see? And I didn't like that was a sin. I wish it wasn't a sin. Then I could keep swearing. But unfortunately, it was. So, I'm concluding with this point. When you confess your sins, when you recognize, sorry, when you recognize that Jesus Christ is your Lord, what you're saying is you are identifying with what he's done and you agree with him that your life is wrong. The direction of your life is wrong. That's what repentance is about. Repentance is where you say, from now onwards, I'm going to put my trust in God and in his son Jesus and I'm going to go his way instead of doing things my way. That's really what repentance is. And so when you do that, you allow what God has done for you through Jesus to be effective in your life. Now, the, the reality is this. After you get born again, after you give your life to Christ, there are certain things that you will face. There will be things that will come your way that will challenge you. So sometimes you will find that because you've given your life to Christ, people don't want to know you anymore. Because you've given your life to Christ and you're trying to live a holy life, you'll find that you will not be as happy in yourself as you used to be because you're in conflict with the wrong things that you do. You find that because you've given your life to Christ, um, it becomes a challenge to say no to your flesh because you've given your life to Christ. But the reason why you did it is because you wanted your soul to be saved. So the good news is that your soul is secure. That's what makes it good news. Your soul is secure regardless of whatever you face now in life. Because you're now following Christ, your soul and the destiny of your soul is secure. I want to read one more portion of scripture and then we're going to pray. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, the Bible says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So these two verses, I want to say this. What he's telling us is this. When you decide to follow Christ, you're going to go through some stuff. And if our faith was only based on the outcomes we get in this life, then really we are a joke. You see, this flies in the face of the idea that if you give your life to Christ, your life is going to be so much better, everything's going to improve. No, sometimes after you give your life to Christ, your life actually appears worse. You know, the early church, some of them, once they gave their life to Christ, and even in Islamic countries, when people give their life to Christ, they're ostracized from their families, they lose their property, they lose their privileges, um, they lose their friendships because they've given their life to Christ. But they're willing to do it. Why? Because of that next verse. The sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Beloved, I've shared with you what the gospel involves. And I want to encourage you to embrace that gospel. If you've given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to be serious about your faith. The world is changing so much now. There's so much blurring now that's going on. But if you are serious about Christ and following him, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter what, how they change the laws and how they change things. Whether things get better or things get worse for us, what matters is our soul is secure and we have a hope that far outweighs anything that we will face in this life. And then if you have not given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to open your heart and to give your life to Christ. Because that is the most important decision you're going to make in your entire life. 36 and a half, 36, 36 years ago, I gave my life to Christ. When I gave my life to Christ, I didn't think I could last even for two years. And it felt that way. 36 years later, I'm so grateful that God in his mercy touched my heart and caused me to surrender my life to him. I didn't save myself, and yet the Bible says, save yourself from this crooked and perverse generation. So I want to encourage you, if you, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you have the opportunity. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, we're going to pray. Before we change the order of service, I want to pray for you. If you're here and you want to surrender your life to Christ, I want to help you on that journey. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I want to ask you to raise your hands where you are because I want to pray with you if you want to surrender your life to Christ. Before we change the order of service, I want to give you opportunity. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I realize that I'm a sinner and I need God and I want to surrender my life. Raise your hand where you are seated. I'll pray with you. Well, I do not see anybody, so I'm just going to quickly move on. I want to pray with you now, those of you who have given your life to Christ who are serious about your faith, and you're saying, Father, I thank you for your gospel, and I want to affirm my commitment to following you. If that is you, stand where you are. And as you stand, raise your hands. I want to just pray over you and bless you before I hand back to Steve. Just raise your hands where you are. And Father, thank you for these precious ones that are standing right now. As they stand before you, and as they affirm their faith in you, I speak strength and grace to them. Lord, will you give them that fortitude to go all out for you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you very much, Steve. Come on, you can do better.
You can do better than that. Give the Lord a mighty clap offering. Thank you, Pastor Joe, for that wonderful word. Amen. That was a wonderful word. Amen. Okay, we're going to receive our offering. And um, before the ashes hand out the envelopes, I'd like to read a scripture. Um, and it's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. And the scriptures read, Will a man rob God? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Amen? Did you hear the scriptures? Will a man rob God? So God is trying to say something to us. If you haven't been honoring him in your tithes and offering, this is a moment for you to repent and be obedient to his word. Amen. If you need an envelope, if you can raise your hands, the ashes will kindly give you an envelope, and I'll pray over the, usher, um, the offering, and then we will move on to the next event. Amen. I'm going to pray over the offering. Father, I want to thank you at this time that you have provided seed for us to sow into your kingdom. We pray that, 